Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is engineer-producer Ed Stasium. But first of all, there's a new study from At Venue that states that merch sales are up 40% from 2019. It's pre-COVID. And this is mostly in smaller venues that are 500 to 2,000 seats. In fact, in 2023, on average, 21% of concert attendees buy merch these days. The K-pop crowd buys the most at 31%, while the lowest is an EDM audience at 14%. This averages out to about $8.66 per head, although it's about $10.70 for rap and hip-hop and $10.40 for alternative. Here's something that everybody should know if you're going to sell merch, though. 90% of people pay with credit cards these days. Also, the average artist has a product line that's 16 items long, which seems like a lot to me, but it turns out that the top three items make up 61% of all sales. What are the best sellers? Well, the top selling item, which is about two times more than any other piece of merch, is still the black t-shirt in medium or large sizes, and this is for all genres of music. Hoodies are now popular and coming on strong. And in terms of colors, 53% of all sales are black, 8% in white, and 6% in tan. Now, if you're looking for ideas on what merch sells for, the average sales prices for t-shirts are now $38. Hats are $35. Hoodies, $73. Long sleeve shirts, $49. Koozies or cup coolers are $9. Sweatshirts, $64. Posters, $40. It sounds really high to me. Tote bags, $39. CDs are going for $29. And stickers, about $7. So which cities have the top merch sales? Phoenix, Dallas, Chicago, Detroit, and San Antonio. I'm surprised at all of them. And here's the best reason to not neglect merch if you're an artist. It takes just under 12,000 streams to equal the profit that you can make from just one band t-shirt sale. If you can pack them in a venue, merch is still where the money's at. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting-edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new hitmaker engineer interviews, and much more. To get your copy, go to rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. That's rebrand.ly forward slash recording handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, we all love great-sounding instruments, especially acoustic instruments, stringed instruments, acoustic guitars, electric guitars, But when it comes to orchestral instruments, there is one brand that is above all others, and it still is kind of like the poster piece for any kind of great-sounding instrument, and that's a Stradivarius. 
For the longest time, everyone thought that the wood was the major contributor to the sound of the instruments. And there's some truth to that because it was actually Ice Age spruce that was used in the 17th century. But then it was determined that maybe that wasn't quite it. So then everyone thought, well, maybe it's a type of varnish. But it turns out the varnish recipes were never much of a secret back then. And since it's been found, the varnish is really not a critical element in an instrument's tone from that time period. Well, what's the secret? New research by an international team at the National Taiwan University, these are all research chemists now, they've confirmed that Antonio Stradivari and all the instrument makers of his day treated their instruments with a very unique blend of chemicals, and that's what actually produced the unique sound. What's the secret solution? Well, the findings show that a combination of borax, zinc, copper, and alum, all mixed with some lime water, was used to treat the wood planks before they were shaped into an instrument. Now, this wasn't done for the reason why you might think. This was actually done to prevent worms from eating away the wood, since at that time, worm infestations were really widespread. So they treated all the wood so the worms would stay away. But then it was discovered that the chemicals actually imparted a sweeter tone, plus made the wood harder as well. This was obviously a closely held secret. And it was before the days of patents, so the formula was never written down. That being said, these chemists have finally figured it out. It's been estimated that Stradivari made about 1,200 violins in his lifetime, and he sold them mostly to wealthy customers. Today, there's only about 600 of them that are still remaining. They've sold for a huge amount of money, with the most expensive selling for $20 million in 2022. It turns out that great tone really does have a price. My guest today is producer engineer Ed Stasium, who was an essential element in the New York punk and alternative rock scene in the 70s and 80s, having worked on seminal albums by the Ramones, Talking Heads, and Living Color. Ed has also worked with a wide range of artists such as Mick Jagger, The Pretenders, Soul Asylum, Smithereens, Motorhead, Joan Jett, and many more. Ed likes to say that I've seen rock and roll grow up, and indeed it's true, having recorded and mixed his first gold single in 1972 with Gladys Knight and the Pips' Midnight Train to Georgia. After spending time on the staff of New York's well-known media sound getting his feet wet in the music business, Ed became the first staff engineer at the famous Power Station, where he played an intricate part in the design of the room and the choice of equipment. In part one of our two-part interview, We spoke about his early sessions as a musician with some recording legends, his first big studio break, working for Ampeg, and much more. Ed was one of my first guests way back in September of 2014, so it was a good time to catch up. I spoke with him via Zoom from a studio outside of San Diego. I haven't looked at your website until recently. Because I don't know that it was there the last time we talked, or at least in the... There, there was probably a website. I had it revamped a little while. I don't I do not do it myself, so it's kind of a mishmash of stuff. I don't have anybody to update it, so it just kind of sits there. Yeah. But nonetheless, there's some great information there. And when I looked at it, it was like, oh, I want to find out about a couple of these things. So the first thing is, we are first recording at Allegro. Yeah. Yeah, with Bruce, Bruce. I don't. Re- I don't remember his last name. He was. A, he did all the Tommy James stuff and Love and Spoonful stuff. 
we were signed to some dodgy record label. I think it was called Parma. I have some singles buried around here somewhere. And it was really, really bad songs written by the keyboard player. One one song was called Welfare. <laughs> and it was a, it was a, a, you know, like a right wing jab at, you know, people who were collecting welfare. It was terrible. Anyway, it was fun. You know, I got to go to the studio. You know, I never saw the multi-tracks. I don't even know what kind of trackage it was. It was probably eight track. Could have been 12 track. I don't know. It was probably eight track. Who knows? We did it. We did like five songs in one day. But what I got from what I read was that it was a jingle house. You, you couldn't bring your own gear in. No, no, they had everything set up, mic'd up and everything. Their drums. They, I don't remember what kind of guitar amp I used, but it was all set up and ready to go. All Probably all the levels. Don't play too loud now. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I do remember that the uh, Hammond organ didn't have a corral. And it was just, you know, it would go stop or, or vibrato. It didn't have the uh, you know, slow turn. I, I remember that, which was, uh, you know, which is my my favorite. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, actually, sure. I, I acquired a, a, friend, a friend of mine gave me a, a, a C3 a couple of years ago. And uh, it was it was hooked up. To, uh, oh, what, the Leslie It's a famous Leslie because I don't remember it, the, the model number, but it's big old, has a big old JB Lansing you know, 15 inch speaker in it. And it didn't have, um, didn't have a corral. So I had, there's a great guy here in town that worked on the uh, entire, there were some things that weren't working and he uh, fixed it up and got it. So indeed it does have the uh, corral now, no stop. Who, who wants to have a Hammond with a Leslie that stops anyway? <laughs> That's the way I always felt. I mean, John yeah. Lord made it work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I saw Deep Purple at the Fillmore. They're great. Fillmore East. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of that, of being on the East Coast then, so you worked early on with both Bob Margulif and Bruce Sardine. Crazy, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah. And Bob, you know, he's always around. He's, I see him off, not often, but often enough. You know, he's at the village, you know, party that they have during NAM, uh, the village uh, recorder party. I always see him there. And he's on the Facebook, so yeah. I can, we can see what we're doing. Yeah, we went to Media Sound. We're in Studio A, and it was a Scully 12-track. The electronics, it was a one-inch tape, Scully, and the eight tra- it was eight tracks. I guess it was modified to 12 somehow because all the, the eight electronics were on the deck itself. Then the other f- four channels were above it in a, in a different rack. Bob Margoloff was the engineer. Yeah, this was before the Stevie Wonder stuff. I think it was November of 70. And um, we did another like five songs. We we signed a deal with, I don't know how it happened. Through, we had a manager, a guy named Barry Landers, who's kind of a hustler radio guy, promo man. He was actually a promo PR guy for the Yankees at one point. And he got us a couple of deals, but he got us a deal uh, with Richie Haven's label, Stormy Forest, at, for a demo. And we went to Richie's house. Richie had a partner named Mark Roth. I remember going in there and they were working on a, a gal called Kathy Smith, not the Kathy Smith of John Belushi uh, demise, uh, but another Kathy Smith. She was, she was really good. Uh, very wonderful girl. There was some festival she played at in Connecticut. I don't remember the name of it, um, but we, we would go, we would, we would rehearse at Mark Roth's loft and, 
we would listen to stuff. He had in his living room, he had two uh, voice of the theater, a seven cabinets. Oh, geez. Wow. <laughs> I don't know what the amp was, but we would, he was, we were listening to the tapes. Of, I remember listening to the tapes of Kathy and he played it really super loud. Um, and it's funny because um, a few years later, I acquired a couple of A7s from when I was working for uh, Ampeg because they distributed all tech stuff. And I got some for the band. We used them as our PA. Um, but yeah, back to Bob. What was the name? What's the name? Tonto. Tonto was in the room at Media Sound. Yeah. And I have a, couple, I have a shot or two of it. I have a shot of Bob in there too, but can't find a picture. Of, can't find the negative of Bob. I don't know what it's around somewhere in a box. Um, but to, uh, Tonto was there. And there was this guy, Ted Barron was producing, but he would just like be rolling joints and smoking weed. And Bob, Bob got on it and became a producer. He actually produced those sessions, even though he was just hired as an engineer. And it was ironic that I would, I would work there um, at media sound, the same room that I would do lots of stuff. in later on, you know, Genya Ramones riff raff did a lot of stuff in studio, a uh, recording. And, um, I still have the mixes that Bob did, and they sound really good. The band sucked, but you know, <laughs> uh, they sound really good. Yeah. Um, it was it was it was a great experience, and you know, I you know Bob was Bob, and like I said, it was pre Stevie Wonder. You know, like probably within the next couple of months is when Stevie ended up at his doorstep. So the story goes on a Sunday morning with the Tonto record under his uh, under his arm, going, "Did you do this? You." You Bob Bogoloff. <laughs> so that's how Bob and Malcolm, uh, you know, they heard the Tonto's expanding headband a record. Oh, Stevie heard it. And uh, that's how Bob started working, making those fan, those fantastic bunch of records that just sound great. I mean, Intervisions, whenever I move and set up my system, uh, especially my uh, uh, my turntable and stereo, I will put on Intervisions and to check out what it sounds like in the room. Yeah, yeah. Even in here, I don't have a turntable in this room, but you know, I'll pop on. I remember I put on a CD. Actually, when I first moved here, I did have a turntable in the room. So, of course, the first thing I put on was Intervisions. Too High is the first track on that. It's amazing. So, you work with Bruce Dean as well. Another, yeah, another crazy thing, right? Yeah. What did, what did I know? This, that's in 1971. He, uh, November of 70, he worked with Margoloff. And then in and that was inspiration to me because I was like a, an amateur kind of, you know, I had a Sony 630 um, that had uh, capabilities of overdubbing and echo on it. And I figured out how to flange stuff between two tape recorders by hitting the reels. Um, <laughs> and um, actually I did it with a cassette deck and just moved the reel on the Sony, slowed it down, sped it up to get flanging going. And I didn't even, I didn't even know that it was flanging because I was listening in headphones. It was just doing this thing in the headphones. Oh yeah. I'm there. Wow. That's cool. That it, somehow I, I wanted to play for a friend of mine and I brought the tape over his house and it was a mono machine <laughs> and it, it was flanging. I'm there. What the fuck is this? Yeah. Holy shit. Flanging. I figured out how to do this. Yeah. It was great. So I flanged everything. I mean, all the early demos had flanging <laughs> on them that I made with my Sony 630. Yeah, so again, that manager, at the time, he was the PR guy for the New York Yankees. And um, Nat Tarnapol was, I believe, the son of the founder of Brunswick. Um, you know, and they had, you know, I mean, Louis Prima was on the late, not Louis Prima, Louis Armstrong was on Brunswick. Uh, 
the Chai Lights had just had a big hit with Have You Seen Her? Yeah. On, uh, this was uh, the summer of 71 that we went into uh, and we drove. We drove from New Jersey. We were from New Jersey. So sight unseen, this guy, Nat Tarnapal, uh, Barry Lander says to him, hey, you know, I manage a band, uh, you know, blah, 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 Brandywine. And um, he's like, oh, well, I have a recording studio in Chicago. Just bring him in. We'll, we'll make it. We'll do a record. We'll give him a record deal. <laughs> and so, lo and behold, he gave us a record deal. The record came out. Another terrible record. But it's, it's, it sounded great. Bruce engineered it. Yeah. So the bass player couldn't make it. So we all packed up all our gear. And at the time, I had my Strat, my 63 Strat, and uh, a Dan Armstrong acrylic guitar. Mm. And um, we packed everything up. We must have used their amps because we we drove out there like in a Plymouth Fury, like a 1960 or 64 Plymouth Fury. And we were all packed in there. The drums were all in there. And uh, it was Albert's car. It broke down on the way to Chicago. Of course. course. Yeah. Overheated, yeah. Overheated. I have a picture of the car overheated. And we're like going, hey, look at that. <laughs> on the side of the road and we got there we stayed at a holiday inn we all slept in the same bed you know yeah and we're straight guys we just you know drank beer and and you know we camped out it was for like i think it was three days and uh worked with bruce he was great and it was you know and i asked him questions about recording what's what i saw the patch bay and you know eq and I, I swear I would talk to him about a compressor, but, you know, Bruce was like anti-compressor yeah. from what I understand. So that may have come up uh, in another interview about me. He showed me what a compressor did, but I don't think that ever happened. Must have been somebody else. So, but he was very good about what the what I was doing with the patch. Made. It was a custom console uh, that he made and he put together. He designed it, put it together in Brunswick Studios. And it was a cool little room. It was the Brunswick Records office and there was a recording studio there. It was uh, just, it was fantastic. And we had, we had, I had a blast, you know, it was fun. This guy, Willie Henderson, who produced the Chai Lights, this black dude, you know, mid, probably in his thirties or something, you know, I was, how old was I? I was like 20 and uh, he produced it and he was just, you know, cool with everything. I remember uh, our, our drummer Chip wasn't keeping time very well. And he went out, we did a cover of the uh, Searchers song, Searching. Yeah. I remember going to find her. Yeah. Um, and uh, I remember he, uh, Willie went out there and like stood in front of Chip with a tambourine and played the tambourine. He kind of remember. Um, well, I haven't listened in a long time, but uh, I remember you can kind of hear the tambourine. It wasn't mic'd up, but you could kind of hear the leakage of the tambourine. Yeah, and it was a blast. And I had to play bass on the record as well um, because our bass player Lenny um, had a family at that time. No, no. Well, I did too. Come to think of it, no. Wait. My my first wife was pregnant at the time. I went to Chicago, July or August of seventy one. He was born in October of seventy one. And of course, you're twenty years old, so you think this is my big break. I'll go wherever. Yeah, you know, and I, you know, I had plans of being a rock star. I mean, that's you know, I was in a band, and uh, that was you know, that was the purpose at that point. You know, I just loved playing guitar, and I was not a good writer though. Um, I wasn't. I didn't write songs. But I could, um, you know, come up with arrangements and uh, suggestions for parts of songs, licks. I remember we had one song called Shed House where I came up with the big heavy lick kind of cream kind of thing, which is not on that Brandywine album. 
people keep sending me the brandy one album i have like two sealed copies in my collection <laughs> look what i found ed you yeah. know they find it at a, a record swap meet or something yeah yeah but it was amazing working with bruce and you know years later as i said with bob you know i see bob often as often as you know that does happen these days to see anybody um but i i did um when i was living in sherman oaks there was a place on Ventura Boulevard called Dave's Laser Disc. And when Laser Discs, you know, early 90s, 93, probably before the earthquake. And I used to go there and pick up laser discs. And um, lo and behold, one day I'm in there and here's Bruce looking through, you know, and I walked up to him and I said, Hey, Bruce, you know, a few years ago, I was, we came to Chicago and made a record. And he said, Oh, I remember you guys. And, um, I saw him a couple times at Dave's Laser Disc. He was living in the area, I, I suppose. That was the only place that sold anything like that. They didn't have laser discs at Target. I don't even know if Target even existed back then. Or at Sam Goody or Tower. They didn't have that stuff yet. So Dave's Laser Disc was the place to go. They had a big showroom with, you know, surround sound room. I remember it. Yes, I do. Um, you remember Dave's Laser Disc? Yeah. Yeah, you bet. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, right, right on. Yes. So, and then, then I did see. Bruce, one more time. I saw him a couple of times at Dave's, and then I saw him at the um, at a NAM show or AES in LA in, in uh, 2011. I got to tell you a story. I interviewed him a few times, and we got to be friendly, and he invited me down to A&M, and he played a safety copy of Thriller, the song. Mm-hmm. And I get goosebumps just thinking about it now. It was fantastic. And he cranked the level up, and it was like, yeah, this... this was it the multi-track? No, it was a mix. It was the mix okay. of it. Mix, okay, yeah. wow. But even so, it, it was, you know, a great experience. Anyway, I want to jump to this. So somewhat of a break for you was Cool in the Gang, right? Sort of, sort of. You know, I, I an old a kid, one of the kids in the neighborhood I used to play with, Michael Bonagura, who I'm actually mixing some stuff for him right now. He's in Nashville these days. And he wrote, he wrote a couple hit songs for uh, Marie Osmond. And he had a, a group called uh, Bittersweet. And then Bailey and the Boys with his wife. So he's still in Nashville. He did okay. He's he's did really well. He's doing real estate now and does real well with the real estate business. So I taught him his first chords on a guitar when he was like 12 and I was 15. Uh, you know, neighborhood kids, you know, jam, real real garage bands. Yeah, yeah. In the garage. And he lived across the street from this guy, Sammy DeSalvo. And... Um, like he would watch us play, you know, venture songs and some James Brown stuff and Oop Oop Doo by Jesse Hill and Rambunctious by, you know, Walk Don't Run. And um, I taught him a couple things. And then a couple of years later, I ran into, I keep running, ran, running, keep running into him. And uh, I actually played in a band with him in like uh, the summer of 68, a band called the London Fog. And then he went off to college and, um, didn't see him for a while. And then in the summer of 1972, I ran into him again. I had, um, how, how did this work? I was with my first wife, Jason, my son, Jason was new, new on the block. And we had moved into my parents' basement. I think our house got, no, it wasn't the flood yet. I don't remember what we were doing. I guess I just wasn't, couldn't get a gig. And I was working, that's when I was working at Ampeg. And um, living in my parents' basement. 
And with the, the last 120 bucks that I had, you know, for some reason I went to a, a little a retail store called Bamburgers. I was in there doing something and there were bicycles for sale. And I bought a couple of bicycles for myself and my wife. I had no money. It was just a crazy, you know, spontaneous purchase. And um, we're riding the bicycles in the neighborhood and I bump into Michael Bonagura. Hey, Mike, what's going on? He starts talking to me. And it turns out that his dad, Big Mike, rest in peace, was a professor of English at Zarephath College in, in Zarephath, New Jersey. It's called It was called Alma White University. It was known for letting hippies wear wigs and uh, <laughs> and getting out for, to get out of the draft because they were a very uh, very pa- a pacifist organization. Um, and Tony Camello, who I worked you know got a got a gig at his studio. He was building a studio. He was a professor. He was the music professor at Alma White University, Alma White College, whatever it was called. So Mike says, hey, my, my friend of my dad's is building a studio in New Jersey. He has an engineer that he works with. His name's Tony Bon Jovi. And he said, Tony said that we can go down there and, and we, we can record anytime we want. Okay. It was probably early summer of 72. And uh, so I was living at my parents' house with a, with a baby and my wife and my parents with one bathroom. And... Um, it took a little while for Tony to get back to us. And of course I thought, Oh, there's, there's a recording studio. It's complete. Well, it wasn't complete when we finally got there. Like there was a console on the floor. It was an old laundromat console that uh, I record. We recorded midnight training, George on that console. And um, you know, there was no glass. There was no floor. There was a uh, Ampex MM 1000, two inch, the 16 track. And it was just all dust all over the place. He didn't cover anything up and he's the carpenters are working. And I just started hanging out there. I, I had been fired from Ampeg because I was in the band still. And I would come in late because we get in at four in the morning and I'm supposed to be there at seven. So I, I, got, I got canned. My dad was really pissed. And uh, so I was collecting unemployment at the time. I was unemployed, collecting unemployment. And I just started hanging out at Camelo's. And Tony Bon Jovi was there. I met Tony. And I started helping him wire stuff, the headphone system. I knew about my dad was a very uh, crafty guy. So he was a good carpenter, but as well, he he knew how to wire stuff. So we had a soldering iron. You know, I knew how to solder. We had, we had wired the house for speakers. Um, you know, we had a, that's a whole other story about my experience with stereo in the early days. So I helped wire the patch bay. I made a, a, a meter bridge. Uh, with uh, 16 meters in it, which never got hooked up. It just sat there. <laughs> um, and Tony was at Media Sound at that time. He was on staff at Media. Before that, he was at Apostolic. And before that, he was at Record Plant, where he worked. Tommy Ramone worked under Tony as an assistant. Tommy Erdely, um working on some Hendrix stuff. Tony worked on some Hendrix stuff. Band of Gypsies, maybe. Maybe some Electric Ladyland stuff. Don't remember. So t- Tony, you know, we we got we got friendly. And um, is there Eddie? Why don't you come into New York? Um, you know, we'll t- well, he he used to take the bus into New York. No train took the bus. He lived in Raritan. He he came from a family. Um, it was the family had the Bon Jovi funeral home in Raritan, New Jersey. It was a a family of morticians, huh. except for Tony. Yeah. 
everybody in the family. I think he had a sister. He may have had a brother, but the sister was a mortician. His dad was a mortician. You know, that was the only funeral home in Raritan, New Jersey. And Tony's that that's a whole other story with him, you know, calling up Motown and taking his trip to Motown and figuring out the delay with the echo chambers and stuff, whatever the heck he did. I'm 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 too I'm too much of a amateur to figure that stuff out. And anyway, so um Tony asked me to go to into media sound with him to go to attend the session. And so I we I drove to New Brunswick. We took the bus from New Brunswick. I drove my car. Actually, at that point, it was like my dad's car, I think, that it had. And um, it was the summer of 72. And went into Media Sound with Tony on the bus and got to Media. And it was a cool in the gang session. Cool. Great. This is cool, man. You know, this is before they really hit it big. And it was for just Delight Records, I think it was, the client. And uh, so I just was watching him hanging out and I helped him set up some stuff and plug some stuff in. He didn't have an assistant. He just did it himself. And I helped him do it. And we set up the tracking. And um, okay, let's set up for vocals, Eddie. They they did did a take in like, you know, 15 minutes and was done. Okay, let's go. Next. I think it was 16 track. There was an Ampex uh, MM1000. There was a really funny remote. <clears throat> and I was watching Tony with the patch bay. So we set up for vocals and the vocalist goes out there and says, Eddie, Tony goes to me, Eddie, I'm going to go get a sandwich. What kind of sandwich you want? And I, I remember wanting, I, I used to love liverwurst on rye with mustard sandwiches from a deli. I don't know which deli he would got it from in New York, but uh, I got my uh, liverwurst sandwich I ordered my liverwurst sandwich and Tony said, I'll be right back. Do the vocals. And I'm like, what? What? So I used, here I am doing the vocals with Cool and the Gang. And then he finished the take. He was happy with it. We didn't do any punching in, I don't think. And then he says, give me, I want to do another track. Let's, uh, let's go to another track. I want to do another take. And I'm like, okay, how do I do that? This is before we had finished Camello's studio, you know? Yeah. I had just seen a patch bay at, uh, at, at the Brunswick studios with Bruce and he explained it to me. So and I was watching Tony, so I figured it out and it was very clearly labeled, you know, track 13, track 14. Okay. Well, I'll take the output of the, there was an LA two way involved. I'm sure take the output of the LA two way and put it into the next track. So figure that then they want to do some percussion. So it, it was a while, it was like two hours or so. And Tony wasn't coming back. I think we did some backing vocals as well. It's a little, it was 51 years ago. It's things are a little vague. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so we were like, okay. And so we were finished. We we're kind of doing a playback. I was kind of m- m- making a rough mix on the on the desk. And uh, in walks the manager of Media Sound at the time, who was Bob Walters, who would, you know, with Tony, um, become, you know, the owners of Power Station. They put Power Station together. And, you know, later on, years later, you know, I was the first employee of Power Station. First person on the payroll, Bob Walters walks in. He's saying hi to everybody because Cool and the gang were a regular client. And Bob was very cordial. He had always had a tie on. And, uh, you know, hey, Cool, how you doing? This guy, that guy. Okay. You know, and he looks over He looks over at me and goes, who are you? Where's Tony? And as though, I swear to God, as though on cue, the door opens in the back of the room. And in walks Tony. He's there. Hey, how's everybody here? Eddie, here's your sandwich. 
And Tony and Bob's like, who's this? Who's Eddie? What's he doing here? How come you're not on the session? And Tony's like, ah, he's a great engineer. He's he knows what he's doing. I I, I had to go do some things. He probably was like, you know, hustling, you know, did, didn't just get a sandwich. He was probably making deals somewhere in the diner or whatever. Um, you know, not drug deals, but, you know, music, music biz deals. And Bob's like, oh, OK, great, great. That's great. Yeah. So that was my sink or swim moment. I bring that up for a reason, because I had not similar, but connected type of thing with Cool in the Gang as well. Oh. So my band was a rock band, and we were signed to D-Light as the token oh. rock band. As the what band? The token rock band. Token you know, rock because, band. Because everybody else was R&B or you yeah, know, funk yeah, yeah. or whatever. So they asked us to come down to the studio outside of Philadelphia, which they had built for Cool and the Gang. Oh. And I think the reason why it was there was a lot of the guys were from like the Camden area more than anything. So it wasn't too far for them to get in, into, you know, the, this particular studio. It wasn't in Philly. It was outside in the Burbs. I can't remember where. Okay. When they had, after they had a, several hits. Yeah. They had hits by this time. Yeah. Yeah. I think actually it was after Saturday Night Fever even. So it was a nice studio, a, a nice API desk and um, an MCI by that time, uh, JH24. So we go in and we do this record. And while we're there, I become friendly with everybody at the studio. And they find out that I, like you, had a tape recorder and been playing with it. And I had gone to school for electronics, so I knew where everything was going and where all the electrons connected and all that. So they said, hey, do you want to do some demos? And uh, meaning to record some demos for them. Uh -huh. And this was all the stuff that they didn't want to do. And I remember distinctly recording Cool and Gangs, that their little brothers, they had a band called the KGs. And they were really good, actually. Uh -huh. But that's kind of where I got my start. Where it's wild. Doing, you know, stuff like that in a real studio anyway. Yeah, yeah. So it, I wasn't good at all, but I had no supervision. It was kind of like, oh, yeah, you just, yeah. You just do yeah, this. You don't figure it out. been doing something right, my friend. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I, I saw that about Coolin' again. I thought, oh, we got a connection here. That's really interesting. That's so funny. Go figure, huh? You can find out more about Ed at edstasium.com. That's edstasium, E-D-S-T-A-S. IUM.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. You can also learn all about the latest in music news, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or to bobbyoundercircle.com, or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoundercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.